Welcome back to Relish the Journey. As always, I am your host, Miles Biggs, and I'm joined in this episode by Kathleen Majerski. Kathleen and I met through Strivent Coaching, some of the mastermind groups that I run and I'm a part of, and she's actually been helping me edit my book called Unseen Work. And in the process of going through the editing of the book and getting to know each other better, we just sort of realized, hey, Kathleen's got a bunch of unseen work too. And what led her to be an editor of books and a writer of her own pieces. So Kathleen, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. So Excited to dive in. Yeah, me too. And so I feel like I butchered that last name. I was asking you before we hit record how to pronounce it. It was Majorski, right? Right. But for mm-hmm. those of you wondering how to spell that, it's literally Major Sky. <laughs> So, yes. so if that helps you with my pronunciation, <laughs> it's Kathleen Major Sky. <laughs> so tell us about how the sky is the limit, Kathleen, with your editing, <laughs> all because of your previous life experiences. I'm not going to make you begin at the beginning, but where do you want to start to pick this apart to people who don't know your story yet? Um, so I, I'm going to start with an article that I read when I was in college at Penn State. All right. Uh, I was I had a habit of reading the Daily Collegian, which is the name of the Penn State student newspaper, pretty frequently. I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a woman of words, um, a word nerd, if you will. And the article, it was an editorial piece. I remember it to this day. The person who was writing it was talking about wanting to become a professional writer, and that's something that I've always uh, thought about, always secretly had a passion for. But you know, I grew up with. Some of some, you know, old stories about, you know, starving artists, writers don't make any money, all that kind of good stuff. And so it wasn't something that I really um, necessarily believed would be in my future, at least immediately after college. Which, and, can I interrupt you on that for a second? Sure. Because you just touched on like, I don't know why, maybe it's because I'm a father. That's become such like a trigger for me is because I've realized the same thing. All the things that were pounded in my head about what I should do mm-hmm. versus the stuff I find myself doing now, it just makes me mad. Like how we say curiosity kills the cat, but mm-hmm. you know, you know, not every cat's dead out there. You know what I mean? Like people bounce right. back. You have to be curious. Or you, know, you can do anything you put your mind to, Miles. Well, then I'd just be sitting on the couch surrounded by billions of dollars as I'm thinking about them. You know, stuff right. doesn't fall from the sky. You have to take action towards things. And I think that's another one because similar to you, you know, I, t- I took AP English. I took honors composition in college. I had college credit going into college for English stuff because I liked writing. But the sort of academic style of it and just the real world of way people talked about just kind of beat the creativity out of me for a while. And I had mm-hmm. to find my way back to it. So it just sucks to hear that you had the same thing. You know what I mean? Like it's... Because you're so talented. To me, I think about all the things I could have been creating if I hadn't let let it be beat out of me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's what this article made me realize. And this article was about this person. He was a senior in college and um, he was a couple years ahead of me in school. And he, you know, he wanted to be a writer. And he said the best advice he ever received about becoming a writer was, yes, you can major in English in college, and those skills are transferable and amazing. But don't necessarily start writing when you graduate. Don't look for a writing job. And his solution to that, the advice he received, was that you have to go live your life. You have to have crazy, outrageous experiences to write about. You have to have some kind of life experience, go on road trips, travel, you know, even if it's on a shoestring budget, you know, get a crazy job, like going to a a vineyard in Napa and, you know, working with grapes for two years and just something that you would, you know, kind of think outside the box and have these kind of bucket list type of experiences while you're still young and able-bodied to be able to do them. And that's the the kind of the nut meat, if you will, the good stuff that you'll pull from when you sit down to start writing 10 years later, five years later, 15 years later, you know, when you start interviewing people, you have all of these experiences to pull from that, you know, help you inform the questions you ask people when you're interviewing them or help you inform the questions you form as you're editing something. So it's just, it really impacted me to the, to the point where, you know, it's been 15 plus years since I've been, since I read that article, I still think about it. I still think about instead of having and acquiring material possessions based on high income levels, 
I still think about creating experiences in my life that's more important. So I have something to write about, if that makes sense. Or I have an experience that I can relay to that will inform how I edit and how I show up in my professional life. Right. Yeah, it makes total sense. It's all that old phrase, you write what you know right? And mm-hmm. to me, that kind of hits on the point I was saying before about you can't just put your mind to something. You can't just think about stuff. You have to go actually experience things. You have to put the work in, take action, and those experiences then will fuel what you sit down to write. Because imagination, while important, can only take you so far. Like you said, you can imagine what it's like to work in a vineyard and the process of making wine, but until you actually do it, you're not going to mm-hmm. be able to paint the images with the words about the texture in your hands and the scent in the air and all these things you have to really experience to appreciate and then convey you mm-hmm. have to go out and experience it to write about it well uh, to, to add on that to write about it well <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> for sure absolutely and I think um, after reading that article I really took it to heart and so one of my first major experiences I took advantage of was I had the opportunity to Um, I was a secondary education major, and so I was slated to become a high school English teacher. And when it came time to decide where I was going to do my student teaching, I could go back to Pittsburgh, where I grew up, and have the very typical student teaching experience in an American high school in Pittsburgh and get all my credentials. And I could have stayed in Pennsylvania after and got a job. That's what happens. You student teach, and they usually hire you on after you're done. But I had the opportunity to travel to Norway. And I taught English in Trondheim, Norway, which is a small coastal town about six hours north of Oslo. And it was a life-changing experience. That's awesome. (laughs) And when I went, you know, a lot of of people had said, warned me, you know, you're not having this very traditional student teaching experience. Are you worried about um, getting a job when you return? And I said, absolutely not. (laughs) I'm not worried at all. Um, Because this was, I was determined it was something, I wasn't graduating from college until I studied abroad. (laughs) Yeah, good for you. Uh, And that was the the way I was able to do it. And the students I encountered in that experience um, changed my life, changed my perspective on the world changed my perspective on education and being grateful for education, not only within the classroom, but the experiences I started having outside the classroom as well. One of the greatest experiences I had teaching there was with this group of about 13 students. There were two from Afghanistan, four from Africa, a couple from Russia. So there's just a very diverse uh, little little class and their third language was English. So they had their native language. They were learning Norwegian and then English was their third language. And they challenged me on a daily basis on what it meant to be an American and um, what that looked like at the time and what that meant to me and what that meant to them. So when you say they challenged you, were they just asking you a bunch of questions or the way that they carried themselves challenged you to think about it internally? um, I think both, just because um, they were asking really challenging questions that I had never, you know, outside of my little Pennsylvania existence, had never thought of to, to ask myself. Sure. And so they had asked me really tough questions and they had these incredible stories of survival. They were all seeking political asylum in Norway um, from their home countries and they had these, you know, one the two two brothers from Africa had, you know, literally walked the continent of Africa to get to Norway, and their parents had been killed because of their political beliefs in their countries. Daily on a daily basis, they, my jaw would drop at the stories they would tell me, and they would tell them openly and happily, and they had almost like this kind of grateful optimism about them, even though they were like tragic stories of loss and death and survival. And it just really opened my eyes up to um, how other people experience the world in very different ways from myself. And usually most days um, they taught me a lot more than I could ever, ever teach them. And I will never forget that that experience. Unfortunately, this was before social media kind of went wild. Mm. And so I was not able to keep in touch with them. <laughs> sure. So I don't, I don't know where they are, what they're up to, but I know they will, there'll be a group of, of kids that I will never forget. Yeah, it's interesting. That kind of- they, they have to walk the continent of Africa and we have people that stand in line at Starbucks and complain about the level of foam in their cappuccino. Right. You know, that's <laughs> well, the kind and, of stuff that's crazy. And it was interesting because after I had that experience and graduated from Penn State, I went back and I found a job without much trouble in Northern Virginia. I, was, I taught ninth and 11th grade 
high school English. And, and I'm not saying this, like they were wonderful students as well, but there's just a different mentality. There's a different conditioning, social and cultural conditioning around education in our country that after having that experience of teaching in a foreign country with people from all over the world who don't have the same educational advantages as we do in America or in the United States, it was very eye-opening to see how we take it for granted. Sure. And I got that sense from a lot of my students. And it was just very disheartening as someone who had this really incredible time as a student teacher in a foreign country to come back to home and just kind of just really be hit with the realities of how our culture treats education. And so that was your first kind of eye-opening experience, like you said. So did you write anything? Going back to that article about you have the experience in order to write, did any content get produced out of that experience? Well, it wasn't published publicly, but what I did was I, I kept, and, and this was, again, I should have kept a blog at that time. It probably would have taken off because <laughs> blogging was just becoming a thing. Right, it was like right, right. The, the glory days of blogging back then. What I did, though, was I had maintained an email list of just pretty much friends and family who, before I left, had agreed. I, I had said, do you want to keep in touch with me? Do you want to hear about my, my journey. And they, a lot of them absolutely did. And so I sent a series of emails, maybe weekly or so every couple of days from, I spent four months in Norway and what as a graduation present, and I still have it as a graduation present, my sister-in-law, she printed every email I sent out and she put it in a, um, like a photo album. She three hole punched all the emails. And so I do have it. It's published. Oh, that's really cool. That's a neat, that's a neat gift. Yeah, it was an incredible gift. Um, very thoughtful. And it was just, um, so I do have documentation of that time, but I never published it formally, I guess I should say. Right. Publish it formally yet. Yet. You could yeah. still go back and reflect <laughs> on it. And that's, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. Because I was, I was 22, 23 when all of that happened. So it would be interesting to kind of, as my life has unfolded, it would be interesting to go back and read through all of them, see the perspective, how it's changed. Cause I'm definitely not a, not a formal teacher anymore. Like I was, but I feel like I, as an editor, I, I still do some teaching. Yeah. So let's touch on that. You say you're not a, a formal teacher anymore, like you were. So mm -hmm. what shook you out of teaching? Um, it was, it was basically the system. Um, the system is, is very broken, the public education system in the United States. And, and I could see very quickly that the system did not serve the entire student population that I was encountering. And, you know, as one person in, you know, in the trenches day in and day out, it's very discouraging to see that and to realize very quickly that as a one single person, there's not a whole lot you can do about it because it's like you versus the system. And there are tiny things you could do to help those that aren't being served, but you just feel so overwhelmed and so hopeless um, because there's just, it's just too much. There's just too much, um, too many students that aren't getting what they need. So after, yeah. and plus I, I was just, I burned out very quickly. I wanted, you know, I was young and, and impressionable and I still wanted to, you know, I wanted to do it all. I wanted to be the super teacher. And so I was on all the committees. I coached tennis. I, you know, I, I stayed late. I got there early. You know, I, if they wanted me to do something, I was the first in line to do it. And so by the time my third year approached, I was just exhausted. I was just tired. And I knew if I, I knew I couldn't be you know, and I had this kind of, I saw a lot of the older teachers who were on their way out into retirement um, had just become so jaded by their careers and they had lost kind of what they had loved about it originally. And it just, it broke my heart and I just didn't want to be in that position, you know, 25 years from now. Yeah. It's so, almost like then. looking into the future at your future self and yeah. that moment, of, you know, if you don't leave now, you're going to be that person in right. a couple of decades. Yeah. And I also, um, even back then, I didn't know what it would have looked like, but I definitely had some entrepreneurial leanings in a professional way, in a personal way. I, I knew that I didn't necessarily wanted to do it the very traditional corporate route in terms of being you know, interested in business. I knew I never wanted to go to business school um, in a very formal way, but I knew someday that being an entrepreneur or freelancer, kind of doing something on my own was going to be a part of my professional life. But, you know, way back then, I didn't, I didn't know what that was going to look like. So, right. So you, you realize you didn't want to be that grumpy teacher in a couple decades. So you quit and did what, what was next? I went to grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Still couldn't escape the education. Right. <laughs> 
Um, so I went to journalism school because I thought, well, being a teacher of writing is a very different thing compared to do, actually doing the writing myself. And what better way than to actually do the writing? But I think still, I was still kind of locked into that. I needed the structure. I needed the, like, the system or the, my ego needed the name of, on the diploma of this, the program and the school to prove to myself that I was a writer. Yeah, I think more than your ego, society kind of needs that too in many fields. So mm-hmm. if you really wanted to pursue it, then you almost need to have that entry ticket and the piece of paper with your name on it from the journalism school to lay in the job. Right, right. And so I just, um, I felt like I couldn't be a writer without it. To me, I felt like another, like after I'm, and now I can look back on it and say it, it was just another one of those experiences because <laughs> um, I went through it and realized that being a traditional journalist um, wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. It wasn't, I wasn't going to go, you know, be a social media journalist because social media was just blowing up at the time when I was entering grad school for journalism. And um, I didn't want to be a traditional journalist because those were you know, kind of becoming few and far between um, because of the the downturn in, in newspaper um, journalism specifically. And broadcast journalism wasn't up my alley either. And so I, I went through the program. I completed it. I loved it. I mean, there are parts that I really loved. I loved, I still love being a student. And I think that's what kept me going. I'm still curious and I love studying grammar. I love studying editing. I love studying magazines and design and just like the whole creative aspect that goes into producing a beautiful piece of, of media. And because it can be very powerful and life-changing if it's done well and if it's done in the right circumstances and the right heart behind it. And I just like the kind of intellectual debate that we would have in classes and outside of classes. And we would, you know, have happy hours and talk about nerdy journalism topics and <laughs> <clears throat> all that kind of fun stuff. Word, and, word nerds anonymous, right? So. Right. Exactly. We, we met every Tuesday. You know? <laughs> My name is Kathleen and I'm a word nerd, you know, and, um, you probably have to and say so, an actual haiku or something, not that right, short. Yeah, I think we did something silly <laughs> like that, for sure. I'm yeah. with you, though, on the education and the structure. And I think, you know, we said in the intro to this thing about unseen work, and that's sort of what brought us together and our, our working relationship to the next level. But mm-hmm. there's something to be said for knowing that there's an end at some point in the future and that mm-hmm. satisfaction of chipping away at it. You know, your X credits away, now you're Y credits away, you're at your capstone. It's like you you know what you're working towards is going to get you a definitive result versus just putting in the endless amount of work that can be the rest of your life without quite knowing how the dots are going to connect. Yeah, for sure. And I I really, I did enjoy that part of it. And because I knew that I didn't want to be a traditional journalist, when it came time to figure out what I wanted to do for my thesis, and then I had to it was more of a project, and I also had a have to have a internship that it was um, kind of correlated with my project. And so um, I was an external relation intern at a national security think tank uh, in Washington D.C. So I had lived in Northern Virginia outside of D.C., been a teacher, moved to Missouri to go to grad school, and then for the last semester went back to D.C. to complete my internship at the national security think tank, and then write my project or my thesis. So. That was kind of the next um, mind bending. <laughs> yeah, what did experience. they do at a national security think tank? Uh, so they would write policy that they would recommend to actual lawmakers who could put it into action. And the minds that were in the the office in that room just blew me away. So we had policy experts on India, China, uh, Brazil. We had experts on cybersecurity, internet freedom, you know, military security, any any kind of national security topic you can dream up of that was in in the office. And we had these staff meetings every Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. And the national security think tank I was a part of, they were very proud of, they called themselves a flat organization. So when we were in those meetings, any of the policy interns or the external relations interns, which is what I was, um, from us all the way up to the CEO and the president could make any kind of comment, have be a part of the discussion um, because we there would be a portion like after we would get through the agenda of kind of administrative business, there'd be a portion where we would talk about like the latest topic of the day, like what was going on in the national security world. And at the time, um, the Arab Spring had been taking place. So we we had a lot of interesting discussions about national security and 
the role social media social media was playing in speeding up protests and gatherings and all of that interesting stuff. And so we would have these amazing staff meetings on Tuesday mornings. And sometimes I would just sit there like the sponge, just absorbing all of these brilliant people that I knew in my heart, I will never be in the same room as these people again. <laughs> so I just wanted to, to, to really take advantage of it. And some days like we would go back to our little intern cubes, cubicles and like I would, you know, peek my head over to the, the policy interns who were specializing in a specific area. And be like, guys, what just happened in there? Could you explain it in like English? Because <laughs> I don't have a national security background and it wasn't something, you know, I was just there to, you know, to make sure people, you know, I was, I was in charge of events and, and marketing and making sure that, you know, people's names were spelled right in the PR, you know, the press releases and all of that fun stuff. Right. So the actual, like, you know, policy stuff was just a little above my head most days. And it was just such a fascinating experience. Like some of the high ranking military officials that I had the privy to meet and escort to the bathroom at meetings <laughs> and serve lunch to and, and get coffee for. And like just like months after the, the internship had been over. I would be in my house watching like a Pentagon press conference and I would just sit there and be like, Oh, I met that guy. I had lunch with that guy. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. High ranking well, military official. And I'd be like, ah <laughs> Well, and again, what's interesting is you know, writing what you know meeting all sorts of different people like that, that know all sorts of different things. It's really just great background research for character development in the future. Yeah. Like when you put it that way, it makes it seem less random because <laughs> <laughs> that experience always felt very random. Cause I was just like, you know, when I, when I bring it up, people are like, well, you know, do you have a background in national security? I'm like, no, not even a little bit. <laughs> and so it was just like, when you put it that way, like as a, a character development study, like that makes it feel a little bit less there you go that's my pr spin on it for you thank you (laughs) so since it's so random then you you left it and you didn't go into you know foreign relations or whatever Mm -hmm. so what's the next step on your wild twist of a journey here yeah well after that again because i knew that i wasn't taking the traditional journalism route but i still wanted to be media both fascinates and terrifies me and so I knew that I didn't want to necessarily leave it all behind because I spent you know, a good two years obviously studying it and earning a, a master's degree in it. So um, a kind of being at the right place at the right time a little bit, there was a consulting firm here in Florida um, where my, ha- my family happened to live. They were, were just spearheading a new project on new media and what that looked like, and specifically local media. And so they started this program to better educate local news journalists who were creating online news sites for their local communities and not really like they were writing great content. They were covering great news for their little small communities because the daily metros weren't able to cover the small communities where they lived, but they didn't realize that they were kind of in a way creating their own small media conglomerations. They were their own little, these websites were like their own little media empires. And so in order to be able to keep the lights on, to pay the bills, they had to find some way to make it sustainable, to make it so that they could cover, you know, and serve their communities with this much needed local journalism. But they also had to kind of incorporate the dirty word of advertising. (laughs) Yeah, someone's got to pay the bills. Yeah. Right. And in a lot of these newspaper or local news uh, journalists who had started these websites didn't like they had a very adverse reaction to doing that because when they were working for, say, the Wall Street Journal as a very traditional old school journalist, you know, in back in the day, the journalism was kept separate from the business side. Right. And no, like never should the two meet. Um, because that was a conflict of interest. And, you know, the journalists kind of saw the the business side as kind of the evil money grubbing, you know, sure. advertising people. So there was a lot of resistance in the room when we, we, we put together, I helped put together a conference where they gathered all of these local um, journalists that were from across the country. And there was a lot of resistance in the room when one of the solutions that was brought up was, well, you should sell ads for your on your website. And so um, it was a lot of kind of unlearning, dismantling those kind of thoughts about, you know, business versus journalism. And so I helped, I took part in developing some curriculum, uh, like business curriculum, some entrepreneurial curriculum around making that a more comfortable transition for 
uh, those journalists. So I did that kind of work for about a year and a half um, here in Sarasota. And then it was just, it was driving me batty to be in the, the aging population that is this town. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I started applying again to grad school because I didn't see any other way to get out because there wasn't really any upward trajectory in what I was doing. It was just kind of this project, this temporary project that I had been working on. Like, I didn't even know what to call myself. Was I a media researcher? Was I a conference planner? <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Um, when you were describing that, I was trying to put a label to it too. And it's a very, very unique situation there, especially at the time, right. I'm sure when it was the, the convergence of new media, like you said, nobody knew what to call it. Right. And so I just, I didn't know how to sell it. I didn't know like how to get more work like that because no one else was doing anything like that. And so I kind of, after the project was over, I just, I wasn't really quite sure where to go or what to do. And when I was in DC, when I was interning, I had joined an entrepreneurial book club while I was there. And what we did, we met like every other week and read entrepreneurial books. And so through that group, I had met a woman who was a PR. She owned her own PR company and she was spearheading a new project with a tech company out in California where she called it Nurture Marketing. So she was taking a different spin on kind of cold calling, sales calling, um, trying to sell software to different companies. And so she she got a, assembled a group of us. We came from all different kinds of backgrounds and none of us really had any sales experience. But for a whole year, we worked on behalf of this tech company in California as salespeople. And so for a whole year, I would, there was like a very particular, I had a list of a hundred um, people that I called. Um, I called, I, I guess, 20 every day um, during the work week. And um, it was about calling this, those same hundred people for as long as I could until I got a sale. Wow. And so I did that for almost a year and sold nothing. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised you made it a year. I feel like I could do that for a month and then I'd be checked out. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was, it was kind of an insane and interesting year. Um, but I learned a lot. I, I, I learned a lot about rejection <laughs> and kind of just being okay with it. <laughs> well, that's a great lesson to learn. I mean, most people like don't know what to do when they hear the word no and they completely shut down. So being okay with that is a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. And we would check in with each other. We would have weekly meetings and we would talk about like what that felt like and how we could change our, like, our pitch and and all of that. And so it was a very interesting, interesting year. Um, cause we were, I was selling disaster recovery software. <laughs> and, um, so we were trying to figure out every which way to, to make a, that spin. Um, but it just, it, at the end of that year, uh, they, they decided to end the relationship. And, um, so in the meantime, while that all, all was happening, I was just like, you know, feeling kind of like, I don't know what to do with my life. And I thought, well, going back to grad school again, maybe for a PhD sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, go to school. All right. Go that back was... to school. <laughs> so I applied um, to a couple different PhD programs and I got into uh, the University of Texas at Austin. And this time it was a PhD in education. So the goal was, my original plan was to go to UT and I wanted to marry the two things that I was so passionate about. So I wanted to study uh, high school English in with the lens of kind of incorporating uh, critical media literacy. So having young people really um, understand the media that they're consuming, um, how Im influential it is, how persuasive it is, and just really looking at it in a different way so they're not um, swayed by it one way or the other, that they can kind of look at a couple different sources, understand that it's important to look at verified sources, kind of looking at the different, um, whether or not, like how to evaluate a source. Is it good? Is it bad? Do you, can you trust it? Is it credible? Is it verified? Um, are there multiple resources within it? Right. So kind of marry those things that I learned in journalism school and I was so passionate about talking about at Word Nerd Club. <laughs> right. Yeah, so do your own research, make your own opinion before you see one article about the coronavirus and go buy all the to toilet paper at Trader Joe's. Right, <laughs> exactly. So I'm with you. I wanted to marry like that stuff, the media stuff, with what I knew as a teacher, as an educator, um, in in you know changing pedagogy and all of that fun stuff. And so I went to UT and had um, a great first year. Um, first two semesters were great. Met a lot of great people. Loved Austin. 
loved my roommates, all of my, everything was, was seemingly going really well. And then the second year, um, my second year started and it just, it felt like, um, there are different points in a PhD program where they kind of weed you out. And I felt like I was getting, I was being pushed out. I felt like I was being weeded out very quickly. And I understood why I, no one was really interested in what I was interested in. Just the professors weren't really studying that and the, what they were studying, I, I cared about, but it wasn't like, that wasn't why I had signed up for it in the beginning anyway. Sure. And so I kind of made a, a very tough decision because this PhD program was the first thing, you know, I had, I made the decision to end it. And this was the first thing in my life that I had actually quit. Um, and it, I took it very, I just I took it pretty hard um, and kind of being my own harshest critic, um, didn't feel good about it. But at the same time, I knew it needed, I knew I couldn't just finish it to finish it because that's not something you can do and survive in terms of a PhD program. Like those are intense, really strenuous, very stressful programs, and it wouldn't have been healthy to continue. And so I had to kind of reconcile that internally. And I went to the uh, graduate advisor and said, all right, you know, obviously this isn't working out for you all. This isn't working out for me. And, and um, I think it's best if we part ways, but I've worked here. I worked really hard for two years. Um, what I, I don't really want to leave without anything. So what do I have to do to get another master's degree instead? And they said, well, you take this class and we'll give you another master's degree. So I said, all right, took the class and I have a master's degree in education with a focus in language and literacy studies. <laughs> there you go. So, um, did that and again felt uh, like in a very very similar place as you know where I was after the first stint in grad school from journalism school and just didn't really know where where I was supposed to go or what I was supposed to do and so I stayed in Austin for another two years and uh, I found a job actually within the journalism school at the University of Texas. I was a program coordinator for a um, it was a center within the the sat in the the center in the journalism school the school of journalism. And it uh, was called the Knight Center for Journalism in the Americas. So the Knight Center, the Knight Foundation is a, um, ha was previously a huge supporter of journalism across the country and around the world. And um, so this was one of the many centers they had that were attached to uh, colleges across the United States. And <clears throat> so I was the program coordinator. And what we did, we did a couple of different things. We had a blog that covered freedom of expression issues in uh, South America, in Portugal, and Spain. And so we had um, content in all three languages, Portuguese, Spanish, and English. Then we, um, we, did, we produced online courses, professional development courses, in all three languages for journalists. Um, so, you know, there would be an a, a online course in how to use, how to better use video in journalism in Portuguese. Um, so we had um, all of that. And my main responsibility, aside, to, aside from making sure that the whole center was functioning budget-wise, you know, human capital-wise, um, and all of that, was to plan and coordinate a multi-day, multi-venue conference um, that looked at the future of online journalism. So once a year, kind of the greatest minds in journalism, uh, my, my, the director, he would gather all of these amazing journalism and media people and bring them to Austin. And it was my responsibility to make sure they had hotels, their flights were paid for. They had all the events aligned, like you know, all the mini events, like the happy hours, the lunches and all of that was coordinated. So I, I did that for almost two years. And um, while that was super fun and um, it was a very ad administrative job. And again, it was one of those kind of eye-opening moments where I realized that ha higher ed bureaucracy wasn't my jam. <laughs> yeah. um, Is it anyone's? Um, some people really dig it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and get really get, again, they get into the system and they don't see the, they can't see outside of the system. And so they're just comfortable and they kind of accept it for what it is. And they just kind of motor along and, or, you know, it's interesting. So it's another instance of when you were a teacher the first time, right. And you realized yeah. what you didn't want to be. It sort of sounds like it was sort of the same thing when it came to hiring. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, you would think I would recognize these patterns, right? <laughs> it was kind of... Well, don't tell me common. after that you went to grad school again, because then... No, no. I'll just, I'll I'm lose it. With, <laughs> done, done with grad school forever. I never want to step back into that kind of classroom ever again. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I was just like, you know, I'm still, I still have some, some entrepreneurial inklings to, to explore. And I was having some, because I was stressed out about my job, and um, just the kind of I wasn't feeling good about the physical environment I was in job wise and personally, um, I, my physical health started to suffer. And so I kind of went on this journey um, to kind of inspect what was happening with all of that. And I took a I started a year long course and looked into becoming a certified holistic health coach. And so it wasn't grad school. <laughs> But um, it was definitely a structure and a program. <laughs> sure. Um, and so while I was still doing my program coordinator job, I would I would work on the course. It was a self-paced course that I would um, get into um, mainly once a week. I would I would do the modules, and it was a year long course. And after a year, I grad I you know got my little coaching certificate. And my intention was to start a holistic health coaching business. And so uh, decided it wasn't a good idea to stay in Austin anymore. And so without really a plan, any savings or anything, I decided it was a good idea to go to Southern California <laughs> and start that. <laughs> so I packed up my little, my little car um, with all of my earthly possessions and moved to San Diego. Wow. Um, so from and I, PA to Norway to Virginia to Missouri to uh, DC to Texas to California. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, are the dots connecting yet? <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting okay. there. <laughs> um so like I said, I I um I, ma- I mapped out my my cross my semi cross country journey because I was in Texas, so it wasn't full cross country. Um, but Texas is a big state, and I, the majority of my drive wasn't. But um, I made it. I stopped in Bisbee, Arizona. I stopped in um, uh, Sedona, and then finally made it to um, San Diego. And I had um, a, a plan to. I had set up an, an exchange. There was a woman who needed a dog sitter for a couple of months. Um, in exchange to live, like I stayed at, in her house while she was out and about. That's cool. Um, That's a good yeah. Game. So, <clears throat> yeah. So I did that until I was um, supposed to get kind of my feet on the ground. And um, it's hard to be, to transition, to move to a new place and also not have a job. Yeah. I was about um, to ask you that. Like, what's that headspace like? You're sitting in San Diego. Yeah. You have a bachelor's degree, two master's degree and a holistic coaching certificate and you're mm-hmm. a dog sitter like does that yep. <laughs> did that like just not like like i don't know did that did that suck for you or is you're like okay this is all part of the journey i'm gonna make it or are you sitting there like what have i done um well i think the novelty of being in southern california wore out very quickly and i had a definite kind of oh shit moment and um and i kind of went into survival mode to an extreme that I had never felt before. I always felt like a lot of the things I had done, like the grad school um, and just moving around a lot, always kind of felt very, like, kind of in survival mode. Like, once I got settled, things were okay, and I was doing, like, I I accomplished stuff, I got things done, I was able to function as a kind of semi-normal adult um, and have a social life and and all of that. Uh, But... This 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 adventure in California was a, a different kind of a ball game for me. Um, literally, like after the pet sitting gig happened, I lived in like six or seven different places. <laughs> Almost had to sleep in my car. I worked for Apple for uh, like four months. I was a, a like a meeting planner for them, and I like because I had a lot of stuff personally happening. I wasn't presenting myself very well in my professional life and that made things worse. Sure. So not only like I was in survival mode, but I couldn't represent myself professionally the way I wanted to. Which makes it hard so to survive. Right. So I wasn't showing up authentically very well anywhere in, in my life, in my, you know, friendships that I was trying to make. Uh, it just, I didn't feel like me. And even like there, I had a friend from Austin who periodically would call me while I was in California to check up on me to make sure I was okay. And um, after I left California, 
she had um, confessed to me <laughs> that she said, you know, I, I really I was worried about you because every time I spoke with you, I could just feel like your spirit was drifting. Like you didn't, you hadn't, you weren't grounded in anything. You weren't rooted in anything. And you just, you felt just not, not well. <laughs> and, um, and so I was like, yeah, that's probably accurate. <laughs> So then what was the sort of rock bottom moment where you said, okay, I have to leave California now? Um, so it was a, I had just passed my uh, year, one year anniversary in San Diego. I had spent the summer up, actually I had a pretty good summer. Um, I had, um, I was a Lyft driver that summer. I had a, a, a really fun, I was living in a really fun part of town. Um, I had some really nice, I met some really nice roommates. And, and so it wasn't all bad. Um, I don't want to, you know make it out like it was like all all bad it wasn't but um shortly after I had moved out of this this fun place um I stopped uh, Lyft driving because I I in my Lyft driving I had met someone who needed a copywriter and I was like oh you know maybe I should get back into writing and editing um all of that stuff and so again being a Lyft driver for me was writing fodder like whenever I would meet people that was the main reason I started to do it because I wanted to have new fun stories. And this was my only way because I couldn't afford to go out and be social <laughs> in San Diego, like living vicariously through my Lyft passengers um, and getting to know their stories as I was driving them around San Diego was my way of doing that. Um, sure. and I, bet those... they're, I bet they're pretty candid with their stories because they're like, oh, I'm never going to see this person again. Let's, yep, let's just yep, get into I, it. I, like that could be another podcast episode completely. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that every time I ride in an Uber or Lyft, like – they should just have microphones going the whole time and produce a podcast from the car because oh yeah, so many stories. Oh my gosh, it's insane because it's even it's better than even going to your hairdresser because your hairdresser you see like probably on like a monthly or like however frequently you get your haircut. But a Lyft driver, like you said, you're never going to see them again. <laughs> and if you do, they come so, up in your app. You're like, oh no, cancel this ride. I can't talk to right. that guy. Cause they, like people would get in my car and just unload all of their stuff. And I was just like, Whoa, this is insane. And of course, after my, my shifts would be over, I would write them all down. So I have like a log of all of the stories I've been told. Oh, that's cool. So yeah. just still sitting on those though. You haven't done anything with them. Writing right. Wise? Yeah. I have, I have lots of fodder. I have like journals yeah. and journals. Of I gotta say this right whole on. story feels like like a Netflix original series to me. Like you could be writing a screenplay about <laughs> I know. all of the stuff because all the characters you can infuse and the lessons learned and the ups and the downs. And this is, this is so true for so many people though. And that's why I think it'd be relatable and people would watch it. Yeah. I hope maybe. But, uh, well, anyway, so back to California. So after that summer, I started um, working as a, a copywriter for an ad agency and they were very old school in their, uh, professional work. And again, you know, I really need to not be sucked back into kind of bureaucratic. <laughs> like it, obviously it's a pattern that I need to, to change. <laughs> um, and I think I've started to do that because I work for a company now that is not bureaucratic and I'm doing my own thing. And so I've hopefully finally learned my lesson there. But anyway, so I had started with this ad agency and um, moved into a new place. And um, this, this, the person that had um, owned the condo where I was living also lived in the condo and she had chosen uh, another person to live in the room next to mine. <clears throat> and unbeknownst to the two of us, the person who had moved into the other room had some criminal background stuff that he had not been forthcoming with, um, either one of us. Wow. And so one day we got a knock on the door and... Uh, police uh, parole officers were, were at the door and they just it was just a very uh unsettling experience because we had been lied to and he just wasn't um, forthcoming with his situation the circumstances under which he had been paroled and um and it just kind of triggered a lot of things I just hadn't dealt with emotionally from past experiences that I had in college and and it just kind of made me realize that my moves that I had made I think were an effort in like in my mind, I, I always thought all of these things would fix the things that I hadn't dealt with, that I would all of a sudden be show up differently because I was in a new place. But what I learned quickly and kind of figured out 
in this past year when I moved back to Florida, <clears throat> excuse me, was that that's just geography. Like you can, you can, I can move 10 more times, but had I not made the decision to kind of have this um, kind of knee, like dr- being drawn to my knees and surrender in California, where I got so triggered by this experience that this living experience that I knew I needed to come back to where my family was in Sarasota. And I needed to deal with all of that stuff um, because the common denominator in all of this is me, right? And so it didn't matter what city I was in. It didn't matter what grad school program I was in. It didn't matter what bureaucratic craziness I was a part of. I was still showing up the same way. I was still dealing with the same stuff, different day, different city. Um, And I knew if I wanted to live the life I've always envisioned for myself, and that is you know, having, owning my own business, being a freelancer, an entrepreneur, creating those fun experiences for for which I have to write about, um, you know, essentially the bucket list items that I have that I want to experience. I knew I needed to start, I needed to heal. I needed to, to really kind of dig down deep and look at that stuff, even though it was super hard and uncomfortable and, um, not so fun. I was willing to, to endure short-term pain for long-term happiness and payoff. Um, I was confident that there was an other side to, like there was, there was a better way to live <laughs> than how I had been living. And I wanted to show up differently. And I was tired of the way I had been showing up through all those experiences, even though there were really many, a lot of bright spots, a lot of lessons learned, a lot of great people I had met. I wasn't always happy with who I showed up to be in those things, in those times, in those experiences. And I knew I wanted to show up differently. I wanted to show up more authentically, with more integrity, um, with more confidence. And I really needed to tackle it. It was like now or never. (laughs) Yeah. And so that brings us to the present moment of sorts, right? So how have you been able to do all that? So a lot of it, I, you know, I, I found a good, and I'm not ashamed to talk about this. I found a very good therapist who, who helped me uh, process the things that I had not dealt with effectively. And I encourage anyone <laughs> um, dealing with any kind of, of emotional stuff to really find a coach, a counselor, a therapist, whatever you want to call it, a support group, just because you can't do this life alone. And one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this year in in living, coming back to California, or to Florida and really um, dealing with my stuff was that uh, the ability to ask for help is, has been a game changer for me. Yeah. And that's um, a, a huge lesson for a lot of people to learn. Not everybody does. <clears throat> so that's good, you know, good for you to realize that. And to, like you said, you're not ashamed to admit it. I think more people should have a therapist, right? Like (laughs) the world would be a better place if everybody worked through their stuff and didn't project it on other people. So that's awesome. Yeah. 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 And so, and that's what I found that I had been doing. Like I was with, with friendships, with coworkers, you know, how I was treating them was I was working out my shit on them. (laughs) And that's not, that's not fun for anybody. That's not appropriate. That made me feel like a bad human being. And again, that's not how I want to show up. And so, like I said, found a good therapist, found a job where I didn't have to uh, think about anything too much. It wasn't very, it's not cerebral. And so I could go into that job and, and really kind of be in, inside my head and deal with the emotional stuff without worrying about, you know, not being there, you know, being fully present in terms of like, oh, you have to do this meeting or that meeting or plan this event. So I'm grateful for that job. And while I've been able to do that, um, deal with that stuff, I started, you know, I joined the Strive It Mastermind group to to kind of spearhead all of my entrepreneurial leanings, my editing business, my writing. So it's it's just now kind of starting to come together. And I have never felt as good as I do in this present moment um, in terms of things that have been put behind me, like having tools um, cause you know, shitty stuff's going to continue to happen. Like that's just life. Right. Yeah. And so, um, I now have, um, tools, the ability to ask for help when all of that stuff kind of, you know, when stuff does come up. And so, um, I feel like because of what I've experienced both professionally, personally, I'm in a really good spot. You know, I feel confident about the things that are happening, the the opportunities that are coming up the things I'm attracting instead of ch- constantly chasing, which I think is a was also a game changer for me. When you're constantly chasing something, A, you're not enjoying the present moment. 
you're chasing, sometimes you're chasing things that aren't meant for you. And, you know, you can't, you know, you could, you could try and fit the the square peg into the round hole all you want, <laughs> but it's never going to happen. <laughs> right. Um, and that's exhausting. <laughs> and I think for a lot of that stuff, a lot of the stuff that I've done always kind of felt like I was trying too hard. Right. And trying to make it work, trying to, to be something that maybe I wasn't at the time. And I mean, not to say that like life has been an experiment and it always should be, but you know, a lot of that stuff, like looking back, while it it does add to my ability to be a better editor and a better writer, doesn't always to me seem cohesive. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total and sense. So, and I think if if everybody's honest with themselves, life's not cohesive. You know, there, we're never on just one linear path to something. So it's right, right. It's real. And I think, and I think my next level of I don't know if you want to call it healing or uh, transformation, I guess would be a better word at this point, is really kind of having a radical acceptance of what I've been through, the things I've accomplished. And and I'm beginning to start like accepting those things and, and just really being very comfortable with my past in, in my present and being present with people in my life at the moment and enjoying them for, you know, where where we all are on our journey, um, whether it's ahead, right in front of me or behind. And, you know, it's it, now it's just about kind of attracting the things that are meant for me and radically accepting them. <laughs> I love that. And so we've laid out all the dots in the past. And mm-hmm. uh, I'd like you to just talk a little bit about some of the cool stuff you got going on right now. I mean, all these life experiences have led up to make you a better writer and editor. And I know you have some exciting editing and writing gigs on the horizon. So what has all of this uh, led you to? Sure. So um, well, helping you with, with your work, with your book, which I love. It's super fun. Exciting. Oh, right. Yeah, that's your um, favorite, right? That one. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Number one. Um, I love it. I love um, I love reading. Like I, I firmly believe everyone has a story. And so it's it brings me joy to, to be able to read a book like yours. And, you know, and I hope I, I attract more of those kinds of, of, of that work because, you know, everyone has a story and I, and people need to, to hear everyone, other people's stories. Like, it's, you know, you just have to, you, get, you have to get out, outside of your echo chamber and, and people, you know, because there was a moment in my own life where my voice was lost for a, for a number of reasons. Editing to me feels like my way of helping other people find their voice. Hmm. And, and make that. it better. And and that's what I feel like my mission has become because of all the things I've experienced. Um, and it feels very purposeful and it feels like, like it doesn't feel like work to me when I edit your book. It doesn't feel like I'm, I'm doing work. And well, that's and how, so, you know, going back to your thing about you shouldn't have to chase everything all the time. That's that feeling. I think most people are chasing is feeling like work isn't work. It's that ultimate passion and what you love to do every day. And when you can find that, you just grab on with both hands and go for the ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I have, I have your, your book going on. I have um, a contract out with, to edit some curriculum for a nonprofit based in DC, which I'm really excited about. I'm one, you know, in, in doing this podcast interview, you're, you know, you're also helping me start my own podcast. Um, I'm very interested and excited about talking with folks about accountability um, in, you know, in the near future and creating um, some really fun content around that. Yeah, I also I, have... I want to hear all your lift stories in a podcast too. <laughs> Break out yeah, these notebooks and just yeah. uh, <laughs> gather around have, the campfire. Well, That'd be fun. Well, I also, I also forgot to include that I was also a lift driver in Austin as well. <clears throat> and so I have stories from there as well. <laughs> nice. So yeah, so I have all this this fodder, and I'm, it's just about like figuring out a medium and a platform to to really put it out there. And you know, it's start it's starting small. Like right now, I, I do have my blog that I I post weekly about kind of doing entrepreneurialism in my own you know my own way, kind of tackling a lot of those things and being pretty transparent about uh, how I'm going about doing that, <clears throat> in hopes that when people read it, they'll be like, oh yeah, you know, I've had the same same kind of issue. And, you know, I never really thought about it that way. So that's kind of cool that she's tackling it this way. So yeah, so there's a lot of fun projects on the horizon. 
things that are kind of still out there and in potential stages um, haven't, you know, received payments or contracts just yet, but I'm hoping that those things will, will all kind of come together and just kind of, uh, yeah, kind of do the things that I love so I can live the life that I love. I think that's all anybody wants. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. So as you look back and hear yourself go through your whole story, right? And Mm -hmm. you're reflecting on it as you're sharing it with all of us. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your life so far or your life right now? You can pick, but how would you describe that in three words? Can I do three words for each, like before and now? Sure, you can. Yeah. Okay. So before, I think adventurous, chaotic, experimental. Is that a word? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Experimental is a word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Those are the three for that. And then for now, I think rooted, calm, and excited. It's funny how those are very opposite. Right? (laughs) Adventurous to rooted, chaotic to calm, and experimental to exciting. I guess the last one's kind of the same. Right. But um, (laughs) yeah, it's interesting. And it's... Well, and I think, you know, I've never like... We all make different choices, right? Like some people got jobs right after, like very solid jobs right after college, got married, started having kids. And that's one very great choice in life. And that's awesome. But I knew from a very young age that I didn't, I didn't want that to happen to me. I didn't, that wasn't what I wanted when I left college. I think maybe part of me wanted it because I was so sucked into the kind of the cultural expectation of that. But even though a lot of the things I've been through were hard or did doesn't didn't always make sense in those moments I wouldn't change any of it (laughs) because then you know I had this crazy chaotic like 15 plus years after college and now I feel like it's time to be grounded it's time to be rooted it's time to settle down a little bit and I don't think I would have been able to feel that I would have I think I know knowing who I am and who I've always been I think had I gotten married and kind of fallen into the kind of the cultural expectation of what I thought I was supposed to do. Um, I think I would have been miserable and restless. And, but now that I've had all of these crazy experiences, like, I'm just like, okay, (laughs) I feel like I'm, I breathe better now than I did before. And I can, I feel like I've had, like, I've done my crazy stuff, you know? (laughs) Sure. That makes total sense. You know what I mean? And so, like, I don't feel this need, like, in this moment, like, I don't feel like I have, like, I'm going to have, like, a crazy midlife crisis. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I've, I, I had, like, a, a, a extended quarter life crisis. <laughs> <laughs> you got out of the way early. Exactly. <laughs> All of that. Um, and so, um, I, I think for me, that was the path that I needed to go on to get here, right? To feel rooted, to feel some people, you know, they wanted, they felt rooted in that career when they, for the first one they had when they left college, they felt rooted in that marriage or having a child. And that's wonderful, but I never found those things or attracted those things or chased those things because I, I didn't think I, I don't think I wanted them. And, and so now that I've experienced all this stuff, like I just, I feel, you know, whatever I attract next, I think it comes from a different place. Like it's, it is rooted. It, I feel centered. I feel, um, like with my, like my feet are on the ground, like, you know, in, in, in contrast to when my friend had called me in, in California and had said, you know, your spirit is scattered. Kathleen. <laughs> like, I don't know where you are right now. And, um, it's a very different feeling for me to be so, to feel so rooted and centered in this moment, but I do. So. That's great. So uh, use that phrase, we don't know where you are right now, to, uh, to talk about where can we find you right now. People listen to this episode and they want to know where you are right now. Where can they go online to find that blog or your socials to follow your journey and ask you to edit their stuff, hire you, all those great things? Sure, sure. So um, the two main places, I'm, I have a website, KathleenMajorski.com. And um, I mainly post on Instagram, which my handle is at Pink Ninja 218. <laughs> Another and, podcast uh, episode there, I'm sure, too. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I have so many stories. <laughs> um, and uh, and then I mainly, I also post my blog posts on um, LinkedIn. So you can find me, you can just search my name, Kathleen Majorski, and you can, you can, I'd love to connect on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. So. Well, thank you so much for sharing all those stories with us. And uh, I'm sure a lot of people out there are going to connect with what you had to say. So I'm looking forward to getting it out there and sharing it with the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. This was really fun. I I really appreciate you, Miles. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap for this week's episode of Relish the Journey. Thank you all so much for listening, and a special thank you to Kathleen for being our guest this week. If you want to send me feedback on the show or you need help getting in touch with Kathleen, shoot me an email. You can reach me at miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S, at rtjmedia.com. Until next time, everyone, cheers.